Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's watch this quick video. Remember when people used to say boss when they were describing something that was really cool? Like, those shoulder pads are really boss, man. Look at that perm. That perm is so boss. It's what made me want to become a boss. And I look so good in a perm and shoulder pads. But now boss is just slang for jerk in charge. When you consider a great leader, what, what comes to mind? When we think about the great leaders of history, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Winston Churchill, FDR. We think of Washington, of Lincoln, of Martin Luther King Jr., of Mother Teresa, of Gandhi, of Mandela, of maybe the Dalai Lama. We consider sports leaders. I think of people like Derek Jeter, Jordan, LeBron, Manning, Crosby, Wombeck, Krzyzewski, the greatest coach of all time. Yeah. And when you think about leaders, you might think of someone like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, and that name came to me with free shipping and two days. Um, you might think of Bono, of Zuckerberg, of Rembrandt, of people of art and innovation. For others, you might think of mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, the best boss you ever worked for, the best pastor that you have ever had. And really, it comes down to what makes a great leader. Is it their ability to model the way? Is it to inspire a shared vision, to challenge the process and the status quo, to enable others to act, to encourage the heart? Is it all these things and more? What makes a great leader? This is the question I want us to encounter as we continue in this journey of going through all the books of the Bible in a year-ish, in two months. And so we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, as you're turning there, just a word of, of wisdom, we will be done with this series next month, and we will be jumping into a new series. It never fails. We get into these really exciting series, and then they drag on for a while, and you're like, dear Lord, Andy, can you please stop talking about all these things? So we will be done with this series in the next month. Now, who is... Uh, the book of Timothy written to? Well, it's addressed to Timothy, a companion and co-worker in the work of the church. If you recall Timothy's history, he started somewhat with a bang. Uh, he was the one that Paul circumcised after the church said, hey, we don't have to circumcise Gentiles anymore. Talk about a great start to a road trip when Paul did that to Timothy. Now, scholars have called First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus the pastoral letters because as you read these books, what you encounter is that Paul is addressing um, leadership within the church. He's trying to give uh, some characteristics, some understanding, some healthy importance of what makes a leader within the church. And so I hope we'll discover as uh, God is speaking to us that these ancient words do have some
found meaning within our lives. So take a look at verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperament, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Not given to drunkenness or not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gains. They must keep hold of truths of faithful with clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then there is nothing against them. Let them serve as a deacon. How about a few uh, cheesy pastor jokes? Are you ready for this? Uh, What's gray stands in a river when it rains and doesn't get wet? An elephant with an umbrella. All right, here. These are good. Yeah, yeah. These are kids' jokes. Right? These are ones I talk with my daughter about. How can you tell if an elephant is in a refrigerator? Because you can't shut the door. Right? All right, this last one. Last one. Here we go. Uh, what's the difference between a herd of elephants and a bunch of grapes? Nobody knows the answer to this. Grapes are purple and elephants are gray. All right. So let's talk about the pink elephant in the room. I don't know about you, but this letter is inexhaustibly gender exclusive. With the exception of verse 11, which is debated among scholars as what Paul meant in this entire passage is used with this masculine pronouns. And before we accept Paul's masculine characterization of leadership at face value, or before we dismiss this text altogether, I think it's important for us to understand a little bit of the context that Paul is writing to, and the other passages that Paul talks about as well. First, context. We need to keep in mind that Paul is addressing Timothy, who is now residing as the overseer over a particular church community in the Greco-Roman culture. That matters. It matters that Paul didn't say, hey, Timothy, make sure that when I write this letter, people for the next 2,000 years use it to determine all leadership within church from this point forward. Context matters. Because I don't see many people fulfilling Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says that women should dress modestly, should never wear jewelry, or anything that is expensive. For most of us that had to buy an engagement ring, we would hope that scripture would be true. But we don't live in to those words. Or we wouldn't necessarily necessarily agree with Paul and his portrayal of Adam and Eve in the garden because actually what Paul says contradicts the story of Genesis. Paul says that Adam fell because of the woman, but Genesis tells us that that man was right there with her as she was tempted. It's a bit ironic that we would use this argument against women leadership in the church, but we don't ignore Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, where he says, don't drink so much water, instead drink more wine to your health. But what about this broader context of 1 Timothy within the New Testament as we know it? Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul praises the deaconess Phoebe and recognizes Priscilla as a co-worker in the work of God. 
What about the fact that Phoebe, who delivered the letter to the church in the Roman church, would have been the person who would have preached the letter to the people? You see that scripture is contextual and it matters. We don't want to context certain verses, but we want to context the heck out of other verses. So we kind of shy away when Paul tells slaves to make sure they're submissive to their masters, but then others want to use this text to say that women have no place in leadership in the church. I think context matters. You see, I believe that if God made all humankind in God's image, that makes us all beautiful and wise and able vessels to lead God's people. For it was actually Paul who says, In Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for we are what? All one in Christ. Or what about the single fact that the person who delivered the greatest message that the world had ever heard, that Jesus Christ had in fact resurrected from the dead, was two women. And of course it was a bunch of guys that were pig-headed and didn't listen to them. So, what did the pink elephant say to his psychiatrist? Sometimes I stand in the middle of the room and no one wants to acknowledge me. So maybe the question I want us to consider on this text, if we can move past this gender exclusiveness that Paul is writing in, maybe we can grab something from this that's important to us. I think Paul is trying to teach us a very important understanding of what it is of who can lead the church and why this should lead the church. The church leadership structure is quite unique. It's not like they all of a sudden went to their best business partners of the day and said, we should model that leadership structure. Or they didn't go to the Roman Empire and say, how can we exactly follow how you are doing things? The church kind of learned things on the fly. You had the disciples, and then when the disciples got so busy they couldn't actually do the work of God, they had to appoint these people called deacons or deaconess who would then begin to serve the church. And the church grew and grew and grew, and so the leadership dynamic of the church is growing. And so Paul is writing to all these different types of communities to address to them how the church should function, and it all matters within their given context. Paul refers to two things here that we probably don't want to get too much in the muck and the boring of this. this. He talks about overseers and deacons. Overseers is a synonymous word with something like pastor or leader, primary leader of the church. Deacon would be, or deaconess would be a servant of the church, someone who is able to go out and help people in their need. So Paul is writing to this specific church community. He's trying to address something to him. He's trying to help them understand what are the qualifications of people who can lead the church, both male and female. Uh, recently, uh, some of my travel with my work with CBF has, has got me where I have to get up early in the morning and then leave, and I get those FaceTime calls after I've taken my first flight with the girls, and then sometimes I'm getting back real late at night, like well after they're in bed, and so those first mornings after I am travel, I just love being able to sit down and hold my girls on the couch. And this is a trip I took recently where they were just being a bunch of goobers. Um, Sometimes I wake up in the morning and, like, I ask God honestly, like, me? Like, I'm a parent? Like, out of all people who could be parents, I'm the one who is a parent. Think about this for just a second. As adults, many, but not all of us, made the conscious decision to bring life into this world. So you have the act of 
you know, making children, and of course, guys had the most difficult job in all of this. Um, so a child is conceived, and a, a mother has to carry the responsibility of this for nine months. Your body is going through all sorts of crazy changes, and it's true that guys could never, ever be able to do what ladies do. And here you are carrying this child. Your body goes through transformation. You're having to be responsible. You're having to make sure you intake the right things in your body. And then all of a sudden, your child is born, and now you have to be truly responsible. You have to change that child's diaper like all the time. And let me just go ahead and tell you, nothing in my nasal cavity prepared me for those diapers. And still to this day, I have the worst like gag reflex ever. Like two rooms away, I can already smell it. And I'm wanting to put like one of those hazmat suits on, like full body. Nothing prepared you for the fact that you were going to have to get up at 10 o'clock, at 12 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, at 6 o'clock and do feedings and change the diaper. You're constantly removing objects in front of your children so they would not fall or hurt themselves. And you actually have to watch what you say because apparently children are like sponges and will repeat everything that comes out of your mouth. So how do you prepare for something like that? What are the qualifications for being a parent? Parenting is a big deal. And that's what I think Paul is trying to get at as he throws out all these different qualifications. He's trying to help us understand that helping lead God's church is a big deal. Can we stop in just a second and consider that God has put the responsibility of the church within our grasp. That the God of the universe, the God that hung the stars in the sky, the God that sent Christ to be among us, who died and resurrected from the dead, then looked at us and ascended into heaven and said, oh, y'all got it from here. <laughs> this is God's church. And God puts us in charge of God's church, helping run and manage it. Now it's God's leadership and God is inspiring us and God is ultimately in charge of it, but God has placed the responsibility of the church on us. That's a big deal. There's got to be some qualifications. There's got to be something that we can capture here. And so some of the things that Paul is going to begin to point out within this text, we need to gravitate to, we need to hold on to because it's a big deal. I read an article recently that said that one-third of all marriages uh, in the United States begin with online dating. That's roughly 4.2 million people per month that are using Match.com. You know, the annual revenue of an online dating site is roughly $2 billion. And thank God there's no longer a little lady in our town singing matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, buy me a buy, catch me a catch. That is filler on the roof, right? Because last time I tried to quote a musical, y'all started fact-checking me in the middle of a sermon, and my ADD got me distracted, and then we never recovered from there. Nowadays, we have the simple fact that we can go online and put exactly the qualifications of what we are looking for in that person. So there is no longer the casting your line into the great sea of fishes and having to throw them back when they don't fit. Now you can just say, nope, yeah, right, not going to happen, of course. Because we have in our mind what should matter to us. It's easier, I guess, somewhat to find the exact character of the person you want to date and hopefully, I guess, spend the rest of your life with is not trying to lay out all these qualifications that are so high up here that none of us can meet, but he does say that there are some important things to consider, and that's what I want us to begin to consume this morning. 
The first qualification that Paul is trying to say here is that the person should have some Christ-likeness. Makes sense, right? A person leading God's church should be a person that centers on Christ. So consider just for a second the way that Christ led his life. Christ was centered on the kingdom of God. He cast a clear vision of the kingdom of God. He daily marched up the hill of bringing the marginalized, the people that are pushed out by society, bringing them into the fold of the kingdom of God by telling them that the broken and helpless are at the heart of God. For the sake of the vision of the kingdom of God, Christ died and resurrected from the dead. Christ is the ultimate example of leadership. And if we tried to model and mimic Christ, you and I are going to fail every single time. But there is a difference between simply running away from Christ and trying to pursue Christ deeply within our lives. And Paul is trying to say someone who is leading the church should be someone sent on Christ. Because Christ is the ultimate example of character and compassion, of the vision of God. Someone who is going to lead the church, who's going to raise up within the local community, should be someone who is willing to follow the path of Christ. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we can do all kinds of amazing things in faith. We can do all sorts of amazing things in the name of Christ, but if we don't do it out of love, it is meaningless. And so someone centered on Christ is someone that's filled with compassion. Another thing that Paul points out here is that a leader within the church should be someone who is humble and selfless. In a day and age of a world that is so consumed with self, so fulfilling ourself, the church becomes the antithesis of, of, of the complete opposite of that, if you will. We, we become the, the people who place ourselves under others, that we're willing to serve instead of being served. In, in supporting texts like First Peter, uh, Peter writes this, leaders are called to clothe themselves with humility, or our text from two weeks ago in Philippians, we're called to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. So a servant within the church, someone who's willing to meet the needs of others, someone who's willing to put others before themselves, and we see Jesus doing this time and time again in the Gospels. I want to stop in just a second and consider who it is that's actually writing this letter to us. Oftentimes we read scripture and we forget that it's someone that is writing this. So remember the story of Paul. Yet Paul is responsible for nearly one-third of the Bible. But do you remember the story of Paul? He was a Pharisee. He was a man who was literally and systematically hunting down people who claimed to follow this heretic named Jesus. Remember the story from Acts where literally it says that Paul is the one holding the coats of people who are stoning Stephen to death? That's Paul. And Paul is on the road to Damascus where he is going to find more Christians to have them arrested and tried and probably stoned to death. And the scripture tells that he encountered the risen Lord on the road and his life changed forever. This is Paul writing this. The man who was a vehement enemy of the church, yet Christ transformed him and Christ did amazing things through him, including bringing the gospel to Europe, to those filthy Gentiles that the church wanted nothing to do with. So God took someone like Paul and did amazing things through him. 
I think one of the things we need to focus on here was what Paul didn't say. And what Paul didn't say is you have to be a perfect person to lead the church. We need to stomach that for just a second. Really take that in. You don't have to be a perfect person to lead within this church community. Including the person who's speaking to you right now. I'll put myself at the top of the list of the most imperfect people there are. God can use all people, even a person like Paul, to do great things. Think about the person of Moses. Moses doubted God. He told God that he didn't have the ability to speak to people, and yet God used Moses to bring the, the, the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Think of a man like David. We think of David as this great person who killed a giant, but David also slept with another man's wife, got her preggers, and then had that guy offed. Yet God used David in great and powerful ways. Think about Rahab, the prostitute who helped lead Israel to conquer Jericho. Think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, with a 14-year-old virgin accused of adultery, yet she carried the Son of God for nine months. Think about Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute in the New Testament, yet she is the one who delivers the message to the apostles that says, Christ has resurrected from the dead. God is not interested in using perfect people, but using imperfect people to do God's radical work. You matter to the kingdom of God. Who you are, your story matters. And so that's why within leadership, uh, within Mosaic, we have such a vast variety of people. Men and women. People from all different types of stories and journeys. People who are very uh, familiar with their choices and those who are willing to say, Christ's love has transformed me. Probably the most important aspects of Mosaic's leadership is that we are not looking for perfect people. We're looking for people who want to do the work of God. In Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, he tells the story of... Um, this group of uh, um, men who, who were part of this ship called the Endurance. And the Endurance was led by this man named Ernest Shackleton. And what they were trying to do in the year of uh, 1914 was to set out and go to uh, the polar ice caps. Um, that had been the only and final frontier that no one had actually encountered. And so on December the 5th, 1914, Shackleton and his crew of 27 men set out on the Windle Sea uh, in the Endurance. It was a 350-ton ship. But the the, the crew of the Endurance never actually made it to the continent of Antarctica. You see, just a few days out on their journey, the ship encountered mile after mile after mile of packed ice. And soon it, it trapped their ship, and they had to abandon the ship. They literally gathered on a snow top, an ice top island in the middle of the Arctic where they saw their ship begin to crumble and go beneath the surface. This was on November the 21st, 1915. And so here they are stranded, having to make a decision at what was next. The Shackleton left the crew behind, all but five, and they journeyed 800 miles to find help. And eventually they did. And what's remarkable about this story is not that it was a great expedition. It's not the fact that they went through some whole ordeal. It's the fact that no one died. It's the fact that nobody like turned to cannibalism, like, oh, you look like a chicken leg. Let's eat you while we're starving out here in the middle of nothing. 
This was not luck. You see, when Shackelford actually stepped out and, and, and began to recruit people to be part of this, he wanted a very specific mission that he was asking and inviting people to join. And so Shackleton uh, put an ad in the paper in the London Times and actually read like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in the case of success. You see, Shackleton was wanting to hire people who believed in why he was doing what he was doing. And those are the people he gathered. And that's why they had the success and the remarkable devastation that they faced. You see, there is no archetype leader within the church. Paul is writing to a very specific community, trying to lay out these very generic and important qualifications. But ultimately, what Paul is trying to write to, to Timothy is simply this, that people who lead the church need to understand why we do what we do. Skills can be taught, but passion for the mission of God cannot necessarily be taught. Great leaders are people who not only get why we do what we do, but great leaders are people who live it out each day. People who get why we do what we do sign up for excursions that might risk their life, but they're willing to risk it all for the sake of why they do it. So why do we do what we do within Mosaic? You see, Mosaic is a profound community. Where our desire here is to connect deeply together. We want to connect deeply together in community. We want to connect deeply together with the greater community around us. We want to connect deeper with God. And so, Mosaic, we believe that the church is not designed to just be this place where we come and go each week in an hour time slot. But we believe the church is intended to be a genuine community of people who grow in Christ together, who are there for each other in the most difficult of circumstances, who are learning to be more like Christ together, who are learning to live life well together. And so we have made a commitment to connect deeper to God. That's why we put such much of an emphasis on discipleship, because discipleship isn't about you and I being spoon-fed uh, theological assumptions, but true discipleship is when each of us are willing to grow deeply in our faith, to wrestle with those difficult questions, and to come away with a more formed understanding of why we believe what we believe. That's why worship matters. What we do in this space matters. But the true worship God is interested in is how we live out the kingdom of God each day. We've made a commitment to connect deeper to each other. We want you to be a genuine community together. Not just living your lives when it's comfortable, but helping each other in the in and out and most difficult times of our life. And that's why we've made a commitment to ministry. Because true ministry is not about doing things that make us feel good, but true ministry is putting others before ourselves. This is why we do what we do with Mosaic. We've had so many of you gravitate to that why and have committed yourself to it. I think of people like Rachel and Daniel Himes who chose Mosaic because they saw the genuine community that we were trying to do here. I think about people like Lawrence and Heather Powers who drive 45 minutes every single Sunday because they get why we do what we do. Beth can be added to that who drives almost an hour every single week twice on Sundays just because of this community. I think of people like Daniel and Chris Abbott who had the opportunity to transition away to find new jobs. Yet the reason they shared why they stayed is because Mosaic matters in their lives and the lives of this town. 
I think about people like Bobby and Kristen Colfer who show up here every Sunday morning at 8.45 with their kiddos, not because they want to have an early start to their one day off in the week, but because they want to do their part to make this community happen. That's what we mean of why we do what we do. I don't want you to hear this final thing I'm going to say is empty words, but I want you to hear this as some of the most essential words you ever heard me speak before. Are you ready? God wants to partner with you for great things. God wants to journey with you as you journey in this church community to make a difference in the lives of the people of this church and this Clayton community. God wants to empower you to see a new understanding of your worth in the world by understanding your deep uniqueness fulfilled in serving others. God wants to partner with you to share a story, a dream of a compassion-filled church transforming the world starting in Clayton. Are you willing to discover that partnership? Are you willing to discover what part God wants you to play in that? God wants to partner with you, with all of us together for great things. God is raising leaders in Mosaic, male and female, young and old. Are you going to step out and be one? Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.